word on the, uh, uh, the, the handout that was given by Mark. And if you came in afterwards, I don't know if they were put in the bulletins out there. So, okay, they're out in the... Um, so, yes, not this coming Wednesday, but next Wednesday we'll have what we're calling Table Talk, named after Luther's uh, dinner sessions with his students uh, there in Wittenberg when Luther uh, um, had his conversion and came back and so forth. He, he and his wife, uh, Catherine, invited students into their house uh, so that many times around the dinner table there would be between 25 and 30 people. Uh, so, so Mrs. Luther uh, had to put on some meals. Uh, and and they'd, they'd be there at the table with, with Martin Luther, and topics would come up in discussions, and the students would start taking notes. And those notes actually got recorded. You can purchase them. Uh, you can, it's called Table Talk. And uh, you can purchase Martin Luther's Table Talk, just literally sessions around the table as after dinner or during dinner they'd be discussing, and it's all kinds of topics. Some of them are theological, some of them are quite random. But uh, you, can hear, you can see the notes that were scribbled uh, and, and, and read those thoughts. So we're gathering, uh, not this Wednesday, but next Wednesday, 6 o'clock, we're going to have food here, and we're going to discuss a theological topic. This particular week it will be total depravity because we're taking up the acrostic tulip uh, as, as sort of a, a, a condensation of some of the tenets of the Reformed faith. So, as Mark said, we can discuss all sorts of things, but the, the primary focus of the night will be the topic of total depravity. So what, I, I've, what we've provided for you in that little handout was just food for thought, as we're calling it, and, and there's some text to read. There's a, the chapter from the Westminster Confession, if you'd like to look at that. Uh, if you don't have a copy, well, you can certainly get it online. Uh, it, there you can get, just Google it, you'll get the PDF of the confession if you need to. Or just take a picture of the chapter in, uh, in the hymnal so you have it with you when you go. Uh, so that. And then I just gave some questions. Not that these will be all the questions we'll take up, but just questions to generate thought on the topic of total depravity. So questions for you to contemplate maybe you know, in the week and a half to come to think through how, how, uh, how you might answer those questions. And, and then when we sit together and eat, we'll just have some discussion. Again, it's not a lecture on total depravity. It will be just a discussion. And then when we do it again, we'll take up uh, the next topic. So the topic will primarily be total depravity, and that is just there as suggestions just to churn up so that when we come, we come already moving, a little momentum and we're ready to uh, throw some things on the table. You'll already have thoughts on some of the questions that are relevant to the topic of our human depravity and the, the effect of sin on the heart, mind, soul, will, body of humanity. So take a look at that, use it. We will also send that out in a, 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 as an, an attachment on an email to those who are not here. And, and uh, if you can't come, that's fine. Still good food for thought to wrestle through. And those aren't the only texts to read, it's just some, so feel free to read whatever you want. Today we make our way into chapter 21 of Acts. Paul is on his final journey now. He's heading to Jerusalem, and we know that it will go from Jerusalem, he will go from Jerusalem eventually out to Rome, where he will eventually be executed. He will never make it to Spain, which is his final des destination, his desired destination, but he will not make it there. <clears throat> and Paul is now turned and, and he has 
if you will, much like Jesus. And I think that Luke, by the way, is, uh, is, is not unintentional about this in presenting Paul in a very Christ-like way. Right? Jesus Christ set his face like a flint to Jerusalem. And Paul also sets his face like a flint to Jerusalem. Right? We're, we're hearing in this, he is unpersuaded by the tears. He's unpersuaded by the urgings and the beggings of his friends. The understandable counsel and begging of his friends not to go to Jerusalem. But Paul has set his face like a flint and he heads off to Jerusalem. So there'll be images of Christ, and, and not because Paul is another Christ figure, but because Paul is a model for us to pick up our cross and to follow him. And Luke presents this walk of Paul, this ministry of Paul, in a way that carries echoes, right? Again, going back to the beginning of our study of Acts, we, we talked about how Luke wants us to see in the ministry of the church, the continuing work of Jesus Christ. <coughs> and so, e even back in the, in the miracles, remember the name of Christ is glorified. It's not me, it's the name. It's the name of Jesus. And, and then stories like, like Peter getting broken out of prison by the angel. We heard echoes when we read that story of Jesus' resurrection. How the angels are there at the stone and and then the stone is rolled away by, by the angels, we presume. And, and, then, and then Jesus comes and he meets with the woman, um, and with Mary there in the garden, speaks first with a woman. And Peter, very similar thing, is, is asleep in the jail cell. And the angel opens the door and Peter goes forth and knocks on the door. And it's a woman who comes and speaks with him. And it's, it's not that there's some deep secret in there, or that there's some code to be unbroken. It's just that Luke was telling the story in such a way that we keep thinking, hmm, this sounds familiar. Where have, I, where have I seen things like this before? There's little echoes of the ministry of Christ because Luke is wanting to say, at least in part, that the ministry of the church is the continuing work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We, of course, do not do what he did. We do what we do in light of what he did. But what we do reflects what he did. We are to live out the sacrificial love of Christ in and through our work. And so our ministries are going to have little echoes, resonances, flavors of the ministry of Jesus Christ. It's going to look similar. And so we get that here with Paul. Paul has been traveling around, but now he set his mind to go to Jerusalem and off he'll go. And so last week, you'll remember that he had made this decision, he's going to go. He decided to sail down past Ephesus, not wanting to stop there, not because he wanted to avoid the people, but I think he knew his own heart. If I go there, I'm not getting out. If I go there, I'm going to be stuck. Um, in love for the people, right? Not, not reluctantly, just going to be, I'm going I'm to have a hard time leaving. So he bypasses them, goes down to Miletus, but calls for the elders of Ephesus to come down and meet with him. He can't resist that. So the elders from Ephesus come down and meet with him, and that's the, the, the talk that we looked at last week, a moving and awesome talk as Paul encourages them and challenges them, not only with his past biography, but challenges them going forward. He tells them, brothers, just know that wolves are going to come in among you. They're going to seek to tear this church apart. You're going to have to step up. You're going to have to be diligent. Paul challenges them to be elders, 
to lead the church and guard it, the flock that has been redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ. And then, with great weeping, they leave. And we see the love. This was not business for Paul. This was, this was calling and ministry and family. And Paul leaves with great tears. Now, in chapter 21, we kind of get the hop, skip, and jumping that he's doing to make his way to Jerusalem. <clears throat> and we're going to see him head down there next week. But our text this morning, is, as uh, Mark read it uh, to us, we're getting, and Paul has already told, Luke has already told us that Paul had been getting these warnings along the way. He'd go to a city and people would come to him and say, ah, Paul, I just feel moved by the Spirit to tell you, I, I think trouble's awaiting you. And every city Paul goes to on this last journey, people have been coming to him, telling him, hey, I think trouble is out ahead of you here. And I think that as they said this to Paul, they were saying to him, therefore, be wise. Therefore, maybe change your plans. Paul, even in last week's text, you'll remember, got warned of a possible plot by the Jews to kill him and decided, you know what, I'm not going to sail on the boat. I'm going to take the, I'm going to walk by it. I'm going to go on land. Maybe he feared that on the boat something was about to go down. And so Paul is using wisdom and discernment here. We've seen it throughout his ministry. Sometimes he flees, gets lowered out by a basket, takes the, the word of his friends and doesn't go into the Colosseum where there's uh, a tumult rising up. And other times goes headlong into it. Paul is discerning, uh, listening to the Spirit and trying to use good judgment. But Paul has been getting this word from the Spirit city after city after city. <clears throat> now, in chapter 21, he comes to Tyre. And when he comes to Tyre, once again, people come to him and they warn him, hey, trouble is awaiting you. But Paul leaves, he moves on. As he moves on, he'll come to the house of Philip. And when he comes to the house of Philip, the prophet Agabus, a prophet that we read about back in chapter 11, reappears, comes to Paul, and in a dramatic prophetic gesture, much like the Old Testament prophets who would not only prophesy with their words but with their actions. And remember Ezekiel. Remember we preached to Ezekiel. Remember all of Ezekiel's actions, laying on his side for several weeks and then laying on his other side for several weeks. And people would walk by Ezekiel and they say, Hey, 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 Zeke, what are you doing down there? And, and you know, you're laying on your side. You've been laying here all week. And you've been laying here for 30 weeks. You know, what the heck? And he'd say, well, the Lord is telling me judgment. The Lord is telling you through this that judgment is coming for this long upon you. And then he'd lay on his other side. And then another day you'd come and he's cooking a little campfire, but he's using manure, human dung, for his, for his fuel to burn the fire. And you, you walk by and you, you're, you're smelling a little bit of a foul stench and he's and he's baking this bread over it, and you're like, <laughs> again, Zeke, what, 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 what's happening here? And, and he says, get used to this. This is what you're going to be doing. Um, the Lord has had me do this because this is what you're going to be doing because you're going to be under siege, and you're going to have to use your own manure to bake your bread. You're going to have to dry it out and bake your bread on this. You can go to the store and buy Ezekiel bread even to this day, using the ingredients that the Lord tells them to use, but minus the human manure. Uh, they do not say, in, you know, to get the full effect, bake over your own waste. They do not tell you that, but that is, but that is how Ezekiel did it. Or he, like, they, they walked by Ezekiel's house one day, and he's, like, cutting a hole in the side of his house and pushing all of his bags out there and then squeezing out through this hole. 
And once again, they just, you know, Ezekiel, man, all right, we got to ask, what are you doing? Cut the hole in the side of your house, you know? And he says, well, the Lord is saying that the day is going to come when you're going to have to escape by night out the hole, a hole in the wall, you know, of the city. And I mean, this is how the prophets lived. You did not want to sign up to be a prophet. Uh, and hence, it required the calling of the Lord. But Agabus is doing something also very similar. And he just walks into the house where Paul is, and I, I, I'm guessing just either says, hey, can I have your belt? Now, remember, belt here is not like a belt like you and I are wearing, but it would have been that rope, essentially, that was around Paul's robe. It would have been quite long, you know, around him and probably hung down toward the, toward the floor. And we don't know whether he, we're not giving the details here, whether he asks Paul for his belt or whether he just walks up to Paul and, like, unties his belt and takes it off of him. But he takes it and then ties his own hands up. I'm not sure how that went down. And ties his feet. And he's bound now together, hand and foot. And then drops this prophecy on him. The owner of this belt, who we all know because he just took it off of Paul, the owner of this belt is going to have the same thing happen to him by the Jews. The Jews are going to tie him up and hand him over to the Gentiles. And, of course, at this point, the people in the house, even Philip himself, his daughters, all the companions, Luke, weeping and asking Paul not to go. Don't, don't go down there. Trouble awaits you. But Paul says, I'm going. Stop, stop crying. I'm going down there. And off he goes. And the people, and the way the verse ends, and hence the, the title for the sermon, the way that our text ends, so when he would not be persuaded, we, notice we, Luke himself, we can presume, I guess, is weeping and calling on Paul to think twice. But when he would not be persuaded, we ceased, saying, the will of the Lord be done. And again, an echo, an echo of the ministry of Jesus Christ. Here now, not from Paul himself, though Paul has the spirit of the Lord, which is willing to go into death, but but now from the disciples, not my will, but Lord, your will be done. Right? So echoes of Jesus on his way to the cross. And now these disciples, instead of falling asleep out, you know, outside the garden, are there with Paul, and they are praying. They are essentially praying the prayer that Jesus prayed. Not our will, but the Lord's will be done. So the church is reflecting the nature of and image of Christ. Well, two things that I want to highlight uh, from this text, and I suppose they're related, but in but in in many ways they're they're just two distinct uh, topics. The one doesn't necessarily flow into the other. The first that we see here and witness here that I want to draw attention to is the nature and the beauty, of the importance and centrality of Christian fellowship. Right, the importance, the centrality, and the beauty of Christian fellowship. Now, we've seen this with Paul through his missionary journeys. Paul is a guy who's he's on a mission, so he does not stay and, and grow roots. The longest he'll stay is a few years in, in, uh, in Ephesus. That's pretty amazing. But for the most part, we know, even there, it's only a couple years and off he goes. Yes, he comes back, but no long roots. He's just got to keep moving. He's a man on a mission. Literally, the Lord has commissioned him to do this. But this has not kept Paul from building substantial Christian fellowship and relationships. And we have seen 
that for Paul, this has never been just merely a matter of business and checking boxes. Okay, fine. I preached in this city. I planted a church. I move on. Box checked. Lord, I've done it. I've covered this city. I've covered that city. Paul loves these people. Paul has a heart for the saints. And as he travels city to city and plants these churches, he does not forget about them. The reason we have the New Testament, most of it, 13 books of it, is because Paul loves his churches. Paul loves the sheep. The majority of the New Testament, book-wise, is that of Paul writing back to churches whom he can't visit or may one day get back to visit or is on his way to see or may never see again, writing letters to them, taking up their concerns. They love him. They're sending messengers down to ask Paul questions or he's just hearing reports about what's happening in these churches and he cares and he writes letters back to them, pastoring them from afar, but pastoring them when he has the chance stopping in and visiting them, even putting his life at risk, going back through Turkey, the cities that sought to kill him, going back that he might see these churches, spend time with them, fellowship with them, encourage them, and shepherd them. It's a real model for us. Here, as we come to this text, we, we believe that here he seeks out Christian fellowship from those he doesn't even know. He lands in Tyre, and it says, and finding disciples. Like, he sought out Christians. I'm here. Are there any Christians here in Tyre? If so, I want to find them. He lands in a city. I was challenged by this. You know, when we travel, when we go places, what do we seek out? If we got a few-day layover, which is what Paul ends up with, what would we seek out? I know what I would seek out. I'd seek out culture. I'd seek out good restaurants. I'd seek out the sights. What are the things to see? I'm in Shanghai. I can tell you what I sought out when I was in Shanghai. I'm in Shanghai. Okay, what's there to see here? I'm here. I don't know if I'll be back. I want to see the skyline. I'm in Beijing. Okay, how do I get to the wall? I want to see Tiananmen Square. I'm convicted by this. Perhaps my thought should have been, are there Christian disciples here? Are there any Christians with whom I can fellowship and meet? pray. And of course, some of it has to do with your freedom to travel and who you can get around to see. But I'm convicted. I'm convicted by this with Paul because when he gets to a city, remember, even before he wanted to find his Jewish brother, where's the synagogue? I show up, where's the synagogue? I want to meet my kinfolk. I want to meet those for whom the gospel was given and the, the initial invited guests. And I can't wait to tell them that Messiah is here. On the back end of his journey, knowing now that churches have been planted around the Mediterranean, the, the Eastern Mediterranean, Paul says, where are disciples? And he finds them. And he stays with them. And he fellowships with them. And even to the point that these people begin to grant him counsel, begging him not to go when the word keeps coming that there's going to be trouble. trouble. And they're accompanying him on little stretches of the journey, even so much so, and I just love the image in verse 5. Again, we're presuming these are disciples that he had not met. He comes to the city and meets these people. And when we had come to the end of those days, we departed and went on our way. And they all accompanied us with wives and children till we were out of the city. 
and we knelt down on the shore and prayed. I just love that verse. I just love that image. These are people who just meet Paul. I'm sure he had a reputation. Perhaps they knew him. Perhaps not. But Paul just got to meet them, but they loved him. Even in this short time, there is that Christian connection. And so they accompany him. Can you imagine this group of people who, when they hear Paul's leaving, it's only been a few days, but Paul's been living in their houses and fellowshipping with them and and encouraging them so that when Paul says, okay, we've got to get going, because remember, Paul's on a deadline. He wants to get to Jerusalem by time, by by Pentecost, uh, the day of Pentecost. And so he's got to get moving. And when they hear that, they say, we want to come with you. And so they all walk him. I don't know how many it is, but wives, children, the men all together say, we want to be with you to the very end. This is how my kids were when, when, when Uncle Steve comes home, you know. My other brothers too, but Steve was the hard one because he'd always be flying back overseas. And, and so he'd have to leave early in the morning to get down to the airport. And, of course, I'd take him. And my little guy, when Andy was little and Jake was little, they just, as early as they could, they wanted to come. We want to go all the way. <laughs> we don't want to say goodbye the night before. We'll wake up at 4 in the morning and ride down and get the, at least we get the ride from there to JFK. And then we get the goodbye. And, and maybe let's walk him in. Let's, let's stay, can we at least get him in the door to, to the counter, you know? Uh, just dreading the goodbye, but they wanted to be with him as long as possible. And then the tearful hugs and the time of prayer that we had there at the airports were precious times, but oh, bitterly painful uh, times. You know, you've had goodbyes that are, that are really tough. And I feel for these people who just have come to love Paul and they walk him out. And then I love when they get to the seashore, Paul's getting ready. It's not like, all right, we'll see you. It's they gather around together and they get down on their knees together to pray. Wow, what an awesome time of fellowship that must have been. My kids have, I had a teacher at uh, Chapelfield. I got talking to her, I forget, we were having a year-end meeting and I don't know how it even came up, but she told me that she was into this show on, uh, on the History Channel called Alone. I don't know if any of you have seen this show. But it's a survival show where uh, 10 people get together and they take them out. It's been up in Vancouver, at least the first two seasons that I've seen. And they drop you off, 10 of them on this island, separated by very, very rugged terrain and about five miles apart, each of them. So they can't be together. So you're all individually. They drop you off. And you just have to survive. You can bring 10 things with you from, from a list of 50. You can pick 10. You can bring 10 things with you. That's it. And they drop you off, and you're alone. And you film yourself. So they have to film themselves, because that's the show. And the one who can survive the longest gets $500,000. So you see. <laughs> and on both things, the first guy was out day one. Because there's bears, there's cougars, you know. And so you try to survive day one, they were out. And on the first one, the, the guy went 54 days, 56. Because once the number nine guy goes out, the last one, they just come and say, hey, you've won. So who knows how long he could have gone. But it ended on day 56. And then the second one, I think, went to day 64. So, but what's fascinating about the show, it's just fun to watch. These people survive, and they got to kind of carve a life out of nothing and make a camp and figure out how to feed themselves and all these kinds of things. Pretty neat. But what's interesting about them all is how the physical challenges are pretty intense, but it's the psychological challenges that become the most intense. And they all start, you know, because they're talking to the camera. 
for 60 days, right? It's like their only friend. It's like Wilson in, in uh, you know, in, in, uh, um, in Castaway, you know, like it's their volleyball. So they just, they're just talking to the camera. But, but, and, and so sometimes they really get pretty deep because they're alone. They forget. We're all listening. You know, we all get to listen in. But at some point, they all, once they get over 10 days, they really start talking about how difficult it is to be alone for this long. That they miss people, of course, but just physical contact, just the ability to have a conversation. That you're hungering for food, but you're really starting to hunger pretty badly for fellowship. And then forget about it. They're getting up to day 60 and whatever. They're really struggling for that. And it breaks many people. They're like, that's it. I'm done. I'm, I'm done. All you got to do is push a button. The boat comes get you. You're, you're done. You go home. And I think about that. And I think about how when God made man, he made him in his image. Male and female, he created them. In the image of the triune God. And that man was not created. It was not good. The first thing that was not good in creation was that man be alone. Remember, and that's even before sin. The first not good thing was that man be alone. It was just Adam, and God said, this is not good. Not because God, remember we talked about this in Sunday school, not because God said, oh man, okay, prototypes fail. Okay, plan B, right? I made man alone, this isn't good. Okay, let's see how we can fix it. God creates it in such a way that it's flawed, if you will, so that we can see it. We can see, oh, that's not good. And God says, it's not good for man to be alone. He gives Adam the gift of Eve. Because man needs another. We need fellowship. We need community. Male and female, he made them in his image. He created them together. Different yet one. Not just in marriage, but we need each other. This is just true as human beings. But what I think we learn, I think one of the things Luke is wanting to say to us is not just do we need human fellowship, but brothers and sisters, we need Christian fellowship. That you can be around plenty of people and yet spiritually still be alone. And just as it breaks down these people who are out on Vancouver Island for 10 days, 20 days, 60 days, it will break us down spiritually too if we never have the chance. Like, you know, because you go to work maybe around other non-believers or you're in school with other non-believers or you're in community with these people, and you just know there's a way you talk when you're around other Christians. You give God thanks for things. You, you're excited to hear the way the Lord has answered prayers for people. And you want to unburden yourself, even your, in your own spiritual condition, with other people. And you just can't do that with non-believers. You can give God glory, but it kind of falls flat with them. And you get the weird looks. And that's okay. But it's not satisfying. We need Christian fellowship. And what I love about Paul, Paul, the guy who's on a mission, he gets to a city, he finds it. He finds it. Not just because they need it, but I believe because he needs it. It is not good for man to be alone, physically or spiritually. And so I just want to encourage you. Yes, we have affirmation, but we know the struggles we have because we all come from so far away. And so, yes, come out if you can. For Wednesday night Bible study. Come out if you can for our session of table talk. But in your town and in your city, find disciples. Find Christian fellowship. The person you can have a meal with and be free to talk about Christ. Paul needed it. 
we all need it. Again, I've referred you to Rod Dreyer's book, The Benedict Option. And in The Benedict Option, one of the things he argues is that we as Christians must be intentional in our culture as the, as the Christianized culture of America and the West is crumbling, that it is a high priority for us to find sustainable Christian fellowship where we might encourage one another, be there for one another, support one another, right? share with one another, even the raising of our children, right? To these kinds of things where we're there to help each other and to encourage each other, where our children have the opportunity to look at other families and other Christian men and women in their lives who are there for them as models. And we're so atomized in this culture. As Christians, we're like these little floating beads and we're not together and we need to be together as much as is possible. And we see this here for Paul. So my first point of emphasis, the first thing I just want to draw your attention to is to the need, the centrality, and the beauty of Christian fellowship. Do you have anybody you're praying with outside of, of church? Have you ever had a moment like this where you said, hey, let's pray real quick about that together. I hope you're doing that. I hope you're doing that. You need it, and they need it too. So the centrality of Christian fellowship. And then secondly and finally for today, the, the importance of Christian discernment. And there is a relation here because what we see that what's, what's in some sense breaking Paul's heart, at least that's what he says in verse 13, Paul then answered, what do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? Paul, the, the Christian fellowship is a wonderful and beautiful thing. But even in that Christian fellowship, Paul needs great discernment because he's got these guys killing him. <laughs> they're breaking his heart because they're weeping over his loss. Like the Ephesian elders in Miletus, he said, you will not see me again. And I think they're getting the sense this is true for them too. And they're weeping and they're begging him not to go. Now again, I think they're doing this, and I know they're doing this out of sincere hearts. They're not saying, oh, we know the will of God is that you go but we're saying don't. We're trying to tempt you away from the will of God. They don't know they're doing that, but they are doing that. Just like Peter with Jesus. I often think about this in my own, when I think about prayer and how oftentimes we pray for things and they don't happen. And we're like, what the heck? Because the Bible says, you know, if you ask your father for bread, he'll never give you a stone. If you ask him for a fish, he'll never give you a scorpion. And yet we all know we have prayed for really, really good stuff, really important stuff, and the Lord apparently has said no to us. And you just say, like, what, what do I do with those verses? They don't ring true to me. And I think whenever those thoughts start to happen to me, I think about the disciples, <laughs> think about them falling asleep outside the Garden of Gethsemane, right? Jesus said, pray with me. I'm going to go alone, but I need you all to pray. And what do you think they were praying? It's interesting, Jesus, he does say pray that you won't get brought into this trial, but, but what do you think they were praying for? And I have to believe that one of the things they were praying for is the protection of Jesus. And what do you think they were praying for when Jesus was being tried? Don't you have to believe that they were praying for his release? And don't you think they were praying for Pontius Pilate, that Pontius Pilate would see through all these shenanigans and, and let him go? They must have been praying for that. And yet, and, yet, and, and, and wouldn't you, if you were to ask them, 
isn't this a good prayer? <laughs> Am I not asking the Father for fish? Am I not asking my Father for bread? I mean, how could, it, how could I be asking him for anything else? I'm asking him for the life, for the well-being of Messiah. And yet, had God answered those prayers the way they wanted them, in the way that they seemed so obvious, he would have been giving them a scorpion. They could never have understood that in the moment. But they would have, been received, a, they would have received a scorpion. They would have received a stone. And so Peter, when Jesus is with them and he says, who do men say that I am? And, and of course, Peter answers the question, right, you're the, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Well done, Peter. And then Jesus says, now, as such, I need to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be turned over. I'm going to be killed three days. I'll, I'll, I'll be raised. And Peter does what these disciples do to Paul. They say, no, don't go. It won't be. We won't let it happen to you. Never, not on our watch. We'll die before we let that happen to you. You're, you're our man. You're the king. We're not letting this happen to you. These disciples are stepping up like Peter, and they're saying, not on our watch. Not on our watch, Paul. We're getting this, hey, praise God that his spirit is giving us these warnings. Don't go. And though Paul doesn't say the words, we would understand if he said, get behind me, Satan. This is Satan keeping me from what the Lord has called me to do. I need to go. He doesn't say it. And it doesn't rise to the same level as what was happening with Peter trying to keep innocently keep Jesus from the cross. And he called him Satan. And so the call here is for Christian discernment and wisdom. Paul, is, his heart is breaking as he watches his brothers, sisters, cry and weep over him. It reminds me, I don't know if it did for you, it reminded me of the death of Socrates, actually. Socrates has a very similar situation when he's dying and his disciples are gathered around him and they're weeping and they're saying don't do it and Socrates is going to drink the hemlock and, uh, and they beg him not to do it and he says stop acting like little girls no offense ladies but, uh, but he tells it, it, that's, an, that's an insult to these men and he said don't, stop acting like little girls and, and, uh, and man up I'm, do, I'm doing this in the name of justice uh, in, in, a, in a similar situation we have Paul doing this and asking them not to weep and not to break his heart. His heart is broken, not because of fear of what he's going to have to do. He says, I'm ready. The Lord has given me all these things to prepare me, and I am ready. I am ready to suffer, and I am ready to die for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Stop weeping. I need to go. But again, what I love about these disciples, these friends, is that when they see that, there's no resisting, right? They, they sober up. And though it must have been so painful to know they wouldn't see him again and that ultimately he was going off to a hostile place and to who knows what, but it wasn't going to go well, they could say words like this in verse 14. So when he would not be persuaded, they ceased. So we ceased. Even Luke is there. And said, the will of the Lord be done. The will of the Lord be done. Wow. There are Christian friends, Christian disciples, Christian partners in the ministry who clearly want Paul's well-being. Clearly, they love him and they want to see his ministry continue. But when they perceive that Paul is called to this, 
that he is convinced in the spirit that this is what he must do, they do not continue to be barriers to his calling. But they say, so be it. May the will of the Lord be done. And who knows what that will be in Jerusalem. But may the will of the Lord be done. Not our will, but your will be done. And so we see in Paul the gift of Christian discernment. Other times he goes out in the basket. Other times he doesn't go. Here he knows he must go. And that's the discernment that the discernment that he has from the Lord. And we ought to pray for that kind of sensitivity. Not always looking for the signs he receives, but being sensitive to the direction of the Lord and being given the wisdom to know when it's time to escape out in a basket and when it's time to get on that boat and head to Jerusalem. And the Lord promises that when we ask him for wisdom, he will grant it. So we see his wisdom and his discernment, but also his courage. And there's the challenge for us, that when the Lord calls, we go. We saw in our Old Testament reading Joshua being told three times by the Lord, and we know repetition in the Bible is putting things in bold. It's putting exclamation marks, putting emojis, whatever emoji says this is really serious. The Bible's way of doing that is repetition and repeated three times in just a few short verses. Be strong, Joshua, and courageous, knowing I'm going to give you this land. It's all, the battle's already won yet you're going to have to be strong. It is not going to be easy. And brothers and sisters, the same is to us. The battle is won. Go read Revelation. It's already done. Right? We know at the end there's a wedding feast. We know at the end it's complete victory. We know the end of all our enemies. They're taken up and thrown in the lake of fire, the beast and the dragon and the harlot and these, so forth. It's over. Death cannot win. We know that already. But it's going to be difficult. So be strong and courageous. Don't resist the will of the Lord and say, well, hey, that's scary. That land's filled with giants. There's no way I'm going in there. Don't make that mistake. The battle is yours. The battle is scary, but the battle is yours. It's already won. So look at Paul and emulate. Paul will tell the churches that he preaches to, follow my example even as I follow Christ. Paul sets himself up as an example to follow. A lover of the church, a discerner of God's will, and a man courageous and willing and determined to go where the Lord calls him to do knowing that to live is Christ and to die is gain. I'm ready to go. May the Lord grant us the wisdom and the courage to be his servants. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Paul. We thank you for these wonderful and beautiful displays of Christian fellowship. Oh, Father, grant us Christian fellowship, especially those in our congregation who lack it. For, Father, it's not easy oftentimes to find up here in the Northeast. Father, we often don't have co-workers with whom we can pray and share and fellowship and sing. So I pray for these, my brothers and sisters, that you would grant them good, strong Christian fellowship. And Father, may you give us courage to go where you lead, to pick up our cross, deny ourselves, and follow you, and the wisdom to discern where you are calling us to go. Bless us with that, we pray by your Spirit. In Christ's name, amen.